0: In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Trulaquy and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in three one zero four four one zero five five five. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is... Right Kind of Wrong by Amy Edmondson. Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Um, So definitely one of those that the the title and topic caught my attention because we talk so much about fear of failure and not being afraid to fail and actually recognizing that that's how we can learn and grow and we have to take chances uh, to fail. So this book that is on the science of Failing Well and looking at research into that definitely caught my attention. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. Right Kind of Wrong by Amy Edmondson. The book The Week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Psychological First Aid by George S. Everly Jr. and Jeffrey M. Lating. Um, So Psychological First Aid, this is actually, it's the John Hopkins Guide to Psychological First Aid. And these two authors uh, are from Johns Hopkins and part of the, um, they've helped create or contributed to this program or this approach of psychological first aid. And so just that um, term, psychological first aid, in a way, it's what it sounds like. It's the analog to medical or physical first aid, which is so when something goes wrong, sometimes we think of that uh, first aid box, which has things like bandages and ointments that can be used in a quick manner to attend to someone who has been injured. Um, Psychological first aid is similar and in particular is developed for responding to a crisis, so um, they go through a different type of crises that can come up, things like natural disasters, earthquakes, or floods, um, man-made types of disasters, including terrorism or um, mass shootings, things that unfortunately we have too much of in the United States from the on the mass shooting side. Also, they talked about technological disasters, things like um, uh, the the um, nuclear plant, Chernobyl, but also the ones that happened in Japan, and I believe it was twenty eleven. So there's different types of uh, disasters that can happen. Also hurricanes and those things can be part of that. Tornadoes, weather types of um, disasters that come about. And so there is a great need to respond to individuals in general. Often that time, oftentimes that's an issue. Uh, but they also discuss how for uh, every physical casualty or issue that comes up, in general, there's going to be many more people who are psychologically impacted by an event. So someone maybe just thankfully survived, but they saw the example they use in the books, a tree hit their home, or they came back and saw the tree has hit their home. Whatever it is, even if they're not physically harmed, people who are in close proximity to a disaster, tend to experience psychological distress based on that. Um, they talk about 9-11, September 11th attacks, where, of course, sadly, thousands of lives were lost. Uh, however, if we also look at the New York area, those who lived closer to the World Trade Center were more likely to experience post-traumatic types of symptoms, um, similar to maybe not even a diagnosis of PTSD, but having those types of symptoms. So we can see that even the proximity could impact uh, how you then react to what's happened. Um, Because when we look at trauma, it's definitely something that happens to us, but also it's the ways that it can affect our thoughts and worldview that can be critical. And that's why they even share at times man-made Disasters can have even more of an impact than natural disasters. Uh, The man-made ones to me, I don't know if they got into it at this depth, I didn't recall, but it could affect our sense of people being trustworthy or safe, or can we trust one another, which is very shattering to our sense of security and sense of safety, and that can impact how we feel in the wake of trauma or in the wake of um, the uh, event, whatever that might be. So there is a need to respond to people and they share that in general, not just for disasters and in response to a crisis, we have a, uh, a paucity or we have lack the number of mental health professionals needed to just attend to people's, um, let's say, weekly therapy type of sessions or mental health sessions. Um, requirements or what's needed. But on top of that, when we look at these types of situations, there are many more people who are impacted and there can't be enough uh, licensed professionals to respond. So what we need is more people to be able to respond. And so that's where this type of psychological first aid comes in to create a type of program and protocol that people who are not licensed and not actual mental health professionals can can perform and still be helpful to those who are, um, you know, affected by some kind of a disaster or event. And that's what they they're doing here. And they found that it actually can be quite helpful that even when performed by non uh, mental health professionals, it can be very helpful, um, to give this type of support, this type of psychological first aid and the beginning of the book kind of talks to the history of, a psychological first aid or where it even comes from and how it's really in some ways an intersection of um, physical first aid or medical first aid and psychological crisis intervention and that, that over time became this m- type of model or even this term of psychological first aid which appears to first come about around 1944 uh, in the wake or during world war ii that we first see this term being used in a, in a way. And I'd heard this term before, but I had not um, studied in this way. When I was in graduate school, I remember doing a a training on crisis intervention to potentially be part of something called a crisis response team in an area that I never actually did the, uh, joined the team itself, but went through the training. And so there's a lot of parallels that I recall from the the protocol or the different techniques and things that we learned there that were um, present in the book and of course more uh, added on to that um, in the book and different types of techniques that might be important. Now in general something that or or let me say it this way that you know this book is about responding to a crisis that's the, the format of it or psychological first aid the way it's presented is, is about that but the principles that they share and how To respond based on their model to an individual who's going through this uh, traumatic, potentially traumatic event, is very much in line with what I would say we can do with anyone when we're trying to give them emotional support. And so, even if it's not to the degree of a crisis or a potentially traumatic event, they can still benefit from us providing emotional support uh, in a way that I think would be. Uh, could be modeled on what's in this book. So I think the book is not just, or this model is not just for me, of p- specifically to a, a crisis, but the themes can be applied in a lot of other instances as well. And one um, kind of a, a theme, it's not a technique, but a mindset that I think is so important is when we're giving emotional support to a loved one or to anyone, we usually have this desire to make them feel totally better or to help them or they even talk about a magic bullet or somehow a a verbal hail mary that's gonna to fix the problem and that's often what we try to do and as is often the case when we try to do too much we actually end up doing less or even causing harm so if someone is really distressed let's say uh, a type of a relational trauma. They just lost a family member to death. Somehow they died, and even if it was expected, whatever the way was that they lost someone. If you think, I'm going to go talk to my friend and make them feel good, you are probably going to either hurt them or make them feel worse or not help them at all. So if we go in with the mindset, okay, my friend seems sad, I'm going to make them happy, you're probably going to cause more harm than good. And so it can be important to have a realistic mindset of what you can do and the value of that, which is actually great. And what you really can do is be supportive and it might make them feel some less pain or at least feel less alone in their pain, but that's very valuable don't underestimate how important that is. And so what I see happening so often and just even smaller ways, someone is upset about something going through something is that people are trying to do too much and because of that, they cause more harm than good. So keep that in mind, that when you're being there, um, especially if it's something huge, like a a crisis they just went through, or a smaller type of experience, to not make your goal, I'm going to cheer this person up and make them happy. Because that's usually when we try to either create some crazy interpretations, you know, like, oh, someone died, well, you're lucky you had... Another person in your life, or you know, maybe something bad was going to happen to them, or whatever it might be, you're imposing your belief on them. Oh, they're in a better place. they're in heaven now, so you can't be sad, you have to be happy. You're trying to just take and their feeling away and push them out of that feeling, and that doesn't work. So I think that's a very critical uh, mindset to have. when you're providing emotional support, I'm not going to completely change their mood and, can I tolerate and sit with them while they're feeling bad? Because often what happens is when we try to, let's say someone is crying and we say, stop crying. We might think it's only for them that we're saying, stop crying. But really, when we look at it, it's mostly for ourselves. We can't tolerate them crying. It makes us feel bad and uncomfortable and a bunch of other things we might be going through that we, that we want them to stop. So we say, oh, stop crying, stop crying. It's okay, don't cry. There's no need to cry about this. But really that's for us. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, can I tolerate and sit with their negative emotions and however they are expressing it and tolerate that because I'm not going to just take it away? That's not going to work. That's not going to happen. And especially more so when we're talking about someone who's just gone through some kind of trauma, natural disaster, terrorist attack, or seen a mass shooting or been close to it or hurt by it, we have to really have our goals in mind and be realistic about what's the likelihood of, uh, or, or likely to be the result of our intervention. We just want to be support, try not to let them get worse. Um, they go through their model of what they encourage you to do and each chapters, uh, a chapter on each part of the model of, uh, what it means. And then they have a, this kind of a scenario where there's these, this man and this woman, and the man is responding to this. It's like, it seems like some kind of hurricane or storm, um, and giving support to this one woman who has seen a tree fall on her house and dealing with all the things that she goes through and giving some suggestions of what to do and also what not to do. So let me go through their model, which it's an acronym, which they call the RAPID model, R-A-P-I-D. So it's the uh, Johns Hopkins RAPID model of psychological first aid. And so the R stands for rapport and reflective listening. And so Rapport is is building a type of relationship, um, feeling of closeness, and it's something that you have to build. So you don't just say, well, I'm coming to help you. You should already trust me or listen to me. It's recognizing this person doesn't know you. They just went through something. Um, again, this is not for talking to a friend or a loved one. This um, model is designed for people who are going into a crisis situation and trying to provide psychological support in the form of psychological first aid so you you build rapport and also that can be done by that second r in this uh r part of the rapid model which is reflective listening just again you're not trying to change their mind change their feeling first you're really just trying to understand what they're feeling give them space To share what they're they're going through and build that connection the a in the model stands for assessment but it doesn't mean assessment as in giving some kind of diagnosis or giving psychological tests again this is a model that of course a mental health professional could provide but it could also be someone who's not a mental health professional the guide or the goal here is not to uh, diagnose them but really to get a sign or sense of how much they're being impacted. And so this is going to be done by asking them questions, listening to their story about what happened, and also listening to and asking them how they're they're feeling, different signs and symptoms that they're having in response to what is going on. So this is the assessment phase. Then the P is for prioritization. So this is a type of um, triage uh, uh, mindset of, okay, how much do they support might they need based on what you're hearing, asking more questions in a very uh, calm way. That's also important to maintain a sense of calm throughout the process to get an idea of what what level of care they might need, what's going on. And then the I is actually for intervention. And they say how some psychological first aid models don't include as much of an intervention, but this doesn't mean, uh, again, that you're going to cheer them up, make them totally happy or take away their feelings, but that it can be helpful to provide them some type of interventions that might might have a positive impact. So this could be things like, um, they talk about anticipatory guidance. So that could be setting expectations, meaning, okay, you might feel certain ways, you might notice that you're um, feeling on edge, or you, let's say if their hands are sweaty, yeah, that, that could be a sign of or a symptom of anxiety. So you're giving them something to expect, not telling them this will happen to you, but just helping them understand what might happen in response to a type of trauma. Uh, there's also explanatory guidance. So that's giving them potential explanations for what they might be going through. Again, you're not saying this is why you're feeling this way, but you might Tell them if they say, "I just can't seem to focus." It's like, "Yeah, you just went through something really intense. That that could be an understandable reaction to that." So it can be normalizing and empathizing with what they're going through, giving them some support to let them know that it, it might be more than okay what they're going through or expected what they're what they're experiencing. Also, things like um, they say, prescriptive guidance, so stretch stress management, encouraging them to. Go for walks or exercise after once they've um, you know a little bit of time has passed to do things that might be helpful for them, um, relaxation or breathing techniques, things of that nature. And the last one, even they have cognitive reframing, which this means that sometimes when we you know something happens, we might say, "Oh, it was all my fault," you know, "this happened," or "I should have saved someone's life or done something." And and giving them some potential um, suggestions or ideas of how. It could feel that way, but probably it was not their responsibility or there was nothing they could do to help in this situation, but to give them some sense of relief in what they're experiencing there. And then the last part of the model, the D is disposition, which is for deciding in a way what to do or where do we go from here? So. Will they need extra care immediately if they're really, they seem to not be doing well? Do you want to provide them with some resources and what type of resources? So here it's trying to figure out what to do. And will you do some kind of follow-up? They share that sometimes you, you might do a follow-up a day or two after. Again, these are in certain types of scenarios where people are responding to a disaster or a crisis where they might be there for several days or week or weeks to, to be helping individuals in a variety of ways so that was the their rapid model in a very kind of a snapshot of it after the break i'll talk a bit more about um psychological first aid and what they do and also some considerations and other issues they bring up throughout the book again i'm talking about psychological first aid by george s everly jr and jeffrey m Lating. let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back back, continuing the discussion on the Johns Hopkins guide to psychological first aid. I went over the rapid model and the different components of it, and then they get into each each part of that model and what that looks like and some more information about it. Again, the overall mindset is you are providing support, trying to make sure people are stabilized, not getting worse, and then also helping them with resources that might um, help them in the process and also if they need further resources or care to help them uh, to triage and to, to give them those types of referrals. So um, they shared this scenario throughout the book of Matt and Claire. Claire uh, owns a home that was hit by the storm and a tree lands on her house and damages her house considerably. And then Matt is responding and providing this type of psychological first aid. And so it gives you a nice example of what it looks like, and also in every section they include uh, mistakes to avoid. And so you see them, uh, the conversation, if it goes a different way, if Matt, as the uh, interventionist, um, oftentimes is overstepping his bounds or trying to do too much or doing things that are not helpful, like, for example, um, trying to tell her, oh, you shouldn't feel this way, but in a very uh, aggressive way or telling her not to feel that or that doesn't make sense or to push her to do certain things that she might not want to do or to minimize something that she's going through. So they share different pitfalls that are common ones that we might do. And as I mentioned, this is talking about a crisis intervention and psychological first aid. But I think as I was reading those parts too, they're very much relevant to what we see people um, doing with friends, family, loved ones, uh, the good and the bad of it, that we can often make mistakes that are harmful when we're trying to do too much or trying to impose a certain way of thinking or feeling on the individual and not really taking the time to listen to them, giving them that space. One of the most important things, uh, what we're doing when we have emotional support or give emotional support, just being there is a big part of it. And just being that stable, calm force. Um, Sometimes I think of it like uh, someone is either very, very hot or very, very cold, and you are just serving as a neutralizing force. So imagine if you're a child is very in a lot of pain and hurting. You can't take away their pain instantly. But we can imagine it's like they're very cold and you're holding them and slowly you warm them up. We can't just hope to instantly make them warm. It takes some time. But just being there and being a stable, calm force can be helpful to them. Uh, speaking of children, there's a whole chapter devoted to psychological first aid with children, which also uh, is helpful. And of course, there's some aspects that make it more age appropriate in how we approach it, but we still can provide psychological first aid to children. One um, considerable or one consideration is to whenever possible, except for an, let's say an emergency situation that prevents it, to get parental consent before we uh, start providing psychological first aid or any kind of intervention with, with a child, but most of the principles were similar. We might want to be mindful of certain age-appropriate types of things. Um, one thing is, even with with children, um, especially young children, we don't want to necessarily have them keep repeating the details of the story. That can be re-traumatizing to have to do that too many times. I also remember this um, in the wake of the September 11th, September 11th attacks. They, you know, if we were watching the news coverage. Uh, they would often repeatedly show especially the second plane where there was more clear footage uh, the second plane hitting the the second tower and I think that was actually not helpful for anyone just seeing that repeatedly even though we know it's the same incident in a way for our brain it's like this repeated experience and exposure to something that then will make us think that thing is more likely but especially for children there could be the sense of it's a different event every time so that can make it seem even scarier so I think it's it's fairly similar to what an adult might feel but to child that impact might even be more significant so there was a chapter um, about that and how with with children you also want to pay attention to some other things they they mentioned uh, internalizing and externalizing behaviors and this is something that's um, not just about responses to trauma or crisis but um, something to always be aware of it so externalizing behaviors we can think of this like acting out or uh, coming uh, maybe the more common uh, in distillation of his anger you know getting upset lashing out, yelling, um, you know, let's say breaking things, that would be an externalizing behavior. Internalizing behavior is going to look more like sadness or anxiousness or things that turn inward. And what we want to be mindful of is that uh, externalizing behaviors are much easier to spot and they show up much clearly or they could be hard to avoid. If someone's yelling it's hard to avoid that or you're not going to miss it. But if someone is withdrawn and depressed and despondent, you could be more likely to miss that. Uh, What what it made me think of is often you'll see in a family, uh, if there's a divorce and there's two children, I've seen uh, instances where the parents are worried about one kid. Oh, you know, she's getting angry. She's yelling at me more. She's you know breaking things She's just doing all these things but oh, i'm not worried at all about my son he's like been so calm and he's okay and, and i sometimes want to make sure they don't neglect the son and recognizing maybe he's holding things in more but it doesn't mean he's necessarily okay and we want to really check in and make sure we're not missing that they aren't internalizing what they're going through that they're not having necessarily uh, an okay time with things they just might be expressing their distress in a different way. So uh, that was also noted there. Uh, The chapter after that was on cultural concerns and being mindful of cultural considerations when it comes to psychological first aid. And I think they did a good job of uh, expressing this point that I think is very important when we talk about cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness, which is that we want to become informed and knowledgeable when it comes to different cultures, cultural practices and norms, and, you know, different things that might be involved in even greeting someone and a whole host of things or gender roles. There's so many cultural um, variables that can impact how people interact, how they feel, how they will respond to things. And it's good to be informed, to be aware of that, but we have to be careful not to then stereotype based on those things that we learn because that also makes the person feel not seen in a different way. So if we ignore cultural possibilities, considerations, that can feel uh, like we're not being seen or we're not being, uh, we don't really feel like we can understand or um, connect with the person who is trying to connect with us. But if we're also seen as just our culture, that's not good. So, for example, we might learn that in Middle Eastern families, uh, actually they talked about uh, physical greetings are more common so we know let's say most Persians they might kiss on two cheeks or even sometimes there's a third kiss depending on certain cultures or families and so just because you know this you wouldn't want someone to come up to you and and give you that kind of greeting it might feel uncomfortable or if they hear certain things about culture okay I hear that you're you know, families tend to be more dependent, or people, you know, act in a certain way. If someone came, you said, "Oh, I know that your family must have been this way because you're Iranian." That's not going to make them feel like you're culturally sensitive. That's going to make them feel like you're just stereotyping them, or seeing them uh, as a label or some name or group. So it is itself a a thin line that you want to walk, being informed but not prescribing that I know you because of your your culture. And I thought they did a good job of describing that because I've noticed that, um, you know, it's in a way people might want to show, look how uh, sensitive I am, how aware I am. Oh, I know this about your culture. You must be this way. And uh, with a lot of these types of things, what we see is it's really about the person who's saying it rather than who they're talking to. So they're trying to show how good they are. Look how sensitive and aware I am. Um, Or even, you know, know, he uses the term, woke. I'm so aware of these things that I know this about you. And that can feel very limiting. And actually, again, it's about you who's saying that rather than the person you're talking to. But having that awareness can be really helpful because you can then um, know that, okay, maybe if I'm noticing something, that's something that might be uh, okay. Or, for example, in some cultures... Um, it could be more common for them to talk to the deceased person, to have a conversation with the deceased person. And I've heard of some, uh, psychiatrists who they would hear these kinds of the stories and think, oh, the person is, is psychotic. They're having some kind of episode where they think the person is talking to them. So they should be prescribed medication or they need some kind of treatment, not recognizing that it was a very natural and normal response for, for some individuals. Um, In their culture, it's actually even encouraged, let's say, to talk to the deceased person. So it's not a sign of psychosis. It's a sign of the appropriate grieving and mourning experience of that individual. So they, they had a whole chapter looking at some cultural considerations, not as a prescription of, okay, if you know that someone has this culture, then you know they want this, but just having some awareness of that and how that um, might play out or how it might affect things or just be mindful of that, that even if you're going to an area and you see that there's many people from a certain culture, you might read up on that culture to have some understanding again, not to walk in saying now I know you all because I read, um, you know, Wikipedia about your culture, but to just have some awareness that might guide you or give you some insight into what you might observe or how you might want to interact while you're there. And then there is a very important chapter uh, on self-care. So, you know, here you are trying to provide support for individuals who are going through a uh, extreme crisis, but the crisis providers or responders and the interventionists, they also have to take care of themselves because they can be impacted or you will be impacted by responding to these kinds of situations and to, to helping Individuals who have gone through some kind of considerable distress And so I I thought that was important that they included that chapter that of course you're trying to help But if you as the helper don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to help as many people It's that cliche example of when you go on a plane and they tell you that if you're you are with a child and they drop the oxygen oxygen masks Make sure you put yours on first before you put the one on the child because if in the process of trying to put it on your child, you pass out or you are incapacitated now, you can't take care of your child. So you have to take care of your child first, even though your instinct will be to go to first help your child to make sure you're okay and then be able to take care of them as well. So what I want to do in the next uh, and last segment of the show is continue on, uh, on what the book talks about self-care and just some thoughts about that in general, because this is a term we, we hear a lot thrown around a lot. Um, self-care, and we sometimes can misunderstand what it means to actually take care of ourselves in this way or utilize self-care. So let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So uh, at the end of this book on psychological first aid, they talk about, of course, you are the helper, but you have to make sure you take care of yourself because if you are suffering, you can't take care of the suffering of others. And so there are some suggestions about self-care in the book, which are some of them are pretty standard, but also they do mention what I'll uh, continue talking about in a few minutes of how self-care is not just something you do sometimes like, okay, I got a massage or I went to yoga, so I've done self-care. It's more about self-awareness and and seeing how you're doing, and making sure your routine is something, your daily life is something that uh, takes care of you, and to make sure you don't um, neglect yourself. And so they share four different types of negative reactions that can happen to, let's say, anyone uh, psychological first aid worker or someone in crisis intervention and these happen in other types of helping professions as well Um, but those four are vicarious traumatization secondary traumatic stress burnout and compassion fatigue so vicarious traumatization is and maybe you can get it from that terminology vicarious means it's not yourself but through interacting with the other, um, you get traumatized through your experience with them. And this is the, the, a cognitive change in belief. So for example, by interacting with someone who has just experienced a trauma, your sense of safety in the world might be affected or sense of trust or control it, it might be impacted. So that would be vicarious. Traumatization is more of a cognitive change in beliefs. Uh, secondary traumatic stress Is similar, but this is about behavioral symptoms. And so, in some ways, it's as if you are experiencing a less intense post traumatic stress uh, response or post traumatic stress disorder. There's a quote they have here it says, The primary exposure to traumatic events by one person becomes the traumatizing event for the second person. So, the helper being exposed to the person who was exposed to the trauma gets traumatized by that and hearing them and connecting with them. And if you connect very deeply and closely with someone, you can, or if we even think about what empathy is, you're feeling what they're experiencing at some level, and that can impact how then you uh, feel afterwards, or you may take that with you. So it can include things like avoiding um, certain things or having certain physiological symptoms, sleep issues, uh, sadness, withdrawal, things like that. That could be all part of secondary traumatic stress. Burnout is a term we are mostly familiar with looking at people in lots of mental or physical men- medical health care, but it could really be anyone could experience burnout as they put it. Uh, it's mental and physical exhaustion. So at the second two, uh, burnout and compassion fatigue are ones that are more cumulative. The first two can happen after just uh, one interaction or a brief period of time, but burnout and compassion fatigue are more looked at as a cumulative um, impact or result. So, uh, you know, if we're not paying attention to how stressed and exhausted we're feeling, we can get closer and closer to that feeling of burning out or having burnout, which unfortunately then um, we're going to likely need some kind of care and we won't be able to take care of anyone else. That's why it's so important that we take care of ourselves in general, but especially if we're in some type of a help, helping profession and responding to a, a crisis, especially because if we're not careful, we will end up in a place where we will now need to be helped rather than being able to help others. So, um, you know, as I said, they uh, it burns, uh, burnout builds over time and um, it could include things like emotional exhaustion, loss of empathy, Um, Reduced satisfaction with work and things like that, insomnia, and and that part about the loss of empathy, that's what can happen is that people in helping professions, when they approach burnout, they could recognize or feel that they don't sense that same feeling of compassion or empathy for the people that are suffering. And it's just that, that they're so exhausted and depleted, they don't have those resources left to be available to someone else. So, if we don't take care of ourselves, we, we won't be able to take care of others. And the last one is compassion fatigue, a related one. Uh, and this is also going to be um, an accumulative type of impact or effect. And they describe it as um, basically a combination of the secondary traumatic stress, those behavioral symptoms and burnout. But as the word implies, compassion fatigue, it's the sense that uh, it's similar to burnout. There's just not anything left. It's hard for you to now have that sense of of compassion to for someone else to feel that um, sense of care for them, and so the person won't be able to really be there for others. And so, you know, some of these terms they are very overlapping. We can see how compassion fatigue and and burnout are similar. With compassion fatigue, especially we're talking about this mental part of it too. That it's hard to have that um, sense of compassion for them, but it also impacts you physically. And you can have issues with uh, concentration and insomnia, fatigue, those type of symptoms as well. So we have to make sure we take care of ourselves just fundamentally as a human being. We have that responsibility to ourselves first and foremost and to others, but especially if we are in any kind of helping profession and if we're responding to crises even more so because we know those are intense and stressful uh, situations and interactions that can impact us. But um, I did like that their discussion of self-care wasn't in the sense of okay, make sure you get a massage and you'll be okay, or if you go for a walk and journal, you're doing self-care, you're going to be all right. Um, You know, self-care can then become another thing to do poorly or not to do well. Oh, I'm not doing self-care. I'm you know doing bad. What really, what you know, for me, the key component of self-care is not these actions we take. The first one is self-awareness. Being aware of what you're feeling both in the day-to-day but then overall a bigger picture of how you're being impacted by your daily, weekly life routine. So that moment-to-moment type of self-awareness, that mindfulness is being aware of where you're at. How physically exhausted and tired are you? How emotionally exhausted and tired are you? And What are you going through and that awareness will help guide you on what you need whether that's you're okay and you're you're at the level you're working at is okay or do you need a break do you need to then uh, take some other kind of action because just thinking of self-care is okay get a massage go to yoga do these things it could be good to have these behaviors and um, routines uh, baked into your weekly schedule that is actually very important so you don't skip them but we also need to be aware of what we're going through to know what we need. Okay. I'm tired. I need to lay down. I'm dehydrated. I need some water. But if we're not aware of it, we don't even know, uh, what type of help we need or what type of support we need. So the first thing is to have this moment to moment awareness, checking in with how you're doing and overall looking at your life routine and seeing how much is it taking care of you? How much is it exhausting you or. Over stressing you, and then seeing what changes you need to to make. It's not just a my life is crazy and miserable. But then if I get a massage, I'm going to feel good. Or my, you know, I have too much on my plate and I'm overstressed. But if I take a bath once a week, I'm going to be okay. Those things can be part of your self care and the way you take care of yourself. But it's not just do this one thing on top of your life that's too much for you and you're going to feel okay. And I think unfortunately sometimes people see it this way or they think that's what self-care means you know someone might post a picture of themselves at yoga class or going to get a massage or doing something and saying self hashtag self-care and again it can include that but it's not just something that's going to show up in a post self-care is taking care of yourself every day making sure you're taken care of and your um, routine and your life is not overwhelming you or putting you in a place where you might experience things like burnout or compassion fatigue or getting to this place where you break down, you have to make sure that you're okay. Another thing I often notice with self-care is, you know, when I say things like yoga might be in a class setting, but people go get a massage or they take a bath. um, Often these self-care practices are the things that are described as self-care practices. There's something you do alone. And there's definitely nothing wrong with that. It actually can be quite important to have that solitary time and to take care of yourself in that way. but I don't think it has to be just that. You know, the way I look at it, self-care doesn't have to be by your self-care. It might be things you do with others. It might be talking to a friend or going to a, a group or joining a club or a team or something might be part of how you help take care of yourself. Again, not to isolate an activity and say that's self-care. But the reason why I bring this up is that sometimes we, don't, we, we forget how helpful when it comes to emotional support other people are so it's kind of fitting because this whole book was on psychological first aid how someone being there for someone uh, emotionally giving them that support can be so meaningful and helpful to them to help not make them get worse and to stabilize them and help them get a little bit better but of course in our self-care in general how we take care of ourself we don't want to minimize the significance and importance of other people this is not something that's going to be for everyone or everyone has to do it the same way But most of us will benefit from connections with others, um, love, compassion, touch, various things that we can get from our loved ones and people in our lives. And that's something we want to make sure we are getting enough of. I actually think some of why things like these isolating events or or interactions, which could be good. I know isolating sounds bad, but separate events like a massage or a bath why they are often part of this self-care mindset. Um, It could be, especially for women, there's a sense of having to take care of others being something that is societally put on women more than men. Um, And in general, people might feel this way, but that they're taking care of others. And so when they are around others or the way their routines have been created, they don't get to take care of themselves enough unless they remove themselves from everyone else, they have to be able to get away. And sometimes that is very helpful, making sure that we provide the resources. If you're around someone, sometimes you can do something for them. Sometimes you allow them the possibility to do something. So if they wanna go to that yoga class or go for a walk or take a bath, maybe you are helping and watching the kids or taking care of something that allows for that. But I do think there's something here of, women not being given enough space to take care of themselves or to not always have to be on to take care of something or someone that makes self-care become possible or it seems like it has to be something where the person is completely removed from other people because when they're around other people, they are being asked to do too much. So just a thought on that, the sense that self-care has to be a separate activity from everyone else. Um, and it definitely can include that, how you take care of yourself. But I really do think the significance of being around others in a supporting way, loving way, is something we don't want to, to minimize. So when we look at self-care as something that we are, it's not something you do. It's some, a way that you live. It's not that we sometimes do self-care than we do the rest of life. It's that we are always being aware or mindful of how we are doing. You know sometimes I think of how we're aware of our batteries on our phones. we always know what percent it has okay, it might die soon I have to charge it, but we don't really check the battery on ourselves and I don't mean you actually have a battery on you but checking in with yourself to tune into how am I doing? how am I feeling? Do I need a recharge? do I need am I doing too much? Am I in need of a break or am I okay? am I actually feeling pretty full? but I think we are really not connected to ourselves and what we need and if we want to genuinely practice self-care and taking care of ourselves even I think of it more that way because self-care makes it seem like this separate activity or something that's separate from the rest of life but we're just looking at how do I take care of myself if we really want to do that the most important first step is self-awareness to even know how am I doing uh, what do I need? And then also in understanding how am I doing? What do I need? How's my daily life, my weekly life, my routine taking care of myself or not taking care of myself? I don't want to neglect, not get enough sleep and then say, oh, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to be okay. I have to make sure I'm getting enough of all the things that I need to be okay in my life. That's the best way to take care of myself rather than create a very stressful and, and a, a life that leads towards burnout but think that if one hour here and there i do something that's going to make it all go away uh, so again the book that i discussed tonight was the johns hopkins guide to psychological first aid by george s everly jr and jeffrey m Lating. again if we want to help others we have to first take care of ourselves and you can do a lot more to help others than you think just by simply being there providing them with some support this book does a great job of giving you some a model and some ideas of yes how to respond to crisis but how to just respond to uh, emotional situations or emotional situations that your loved ones might be going through that brings us to the end of tonight's show big thank you to ghazaleh here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr farid alakwi zan zandigi azadi